Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So I think this episode is going to be one of the episodes for anyone that's listening that may be going through something and you're trying to figure out how to overcome it and, and move forward and achieve it. And granted, we're going to be talking about long-term rentals at one time or the other in this particular episode, but the name that I'm going to give this particular boss is the Stoic Boss. And he has like this particular philosophy, even though that he's on the SaaS based platform side of things, he has philosophies as well. He brings both of those hemispheres together. So Andrew, without further ado, the floor is yours. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about you and what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. Andrew McConnell, I'm the founder and CEO of rented.com. We are the pricing engine behind professional vacation rental managers and Airbnb hosts. So you're used to airlines, hotels changing prices based on what's happening. That didn't used to happen in the Airbnb and vacation rental market. So we built that engine to do that. And then I'm also the author of the book, Get Out of My Head, Creating Modern Clarity with Stoic Wisdom. So just a bunch of things I had worked through and seen others work through in 2020, put my pen to paper and pulled out this stoic framework for dealing with something we all deal with, which is mind tendency. So you think about in our life, we think we can own stuff, right? We, we always want to earn money to go buy stuff. We want to buy a house. We want to buy all these things. And we can't really own them. We can't own them in the real sense of owning. You could be a billionaire, as many Russians have recently found out, and everything can be taken from you. No matter what you buy, it can break. It can degrade. Your body, right? You say, well, I own my body. Well, do you? Like a little virus can come in and just absolutely wreck it. But your mind is that one thing you can own, and yet we default as humans, especially in modern day society, to renting it because we give it away to everybody. We give it away to social media. We give it away to the news cycle. We give it away to what we're worried about next week or what happened last week. And we're just left renting little pieces of our mind. And to me, that's that's the single biggest tragedy because I think so many other tragedies stem from that, from that inability to take ownership of the one thing we can own. And it, it hits us all over. And so the, this book, was trying to describe why scientifically we, we default to that state, provide a framework for how we get out of it, and then illustrate it with social activists, CEOs, founders of DocuSign and other big companies, Navy SEALs, Olympians, artists, people from all over the spectrum who have used these practices to really take that ownership and achieve amazing things in modern day society. So, I mean, I'm just listening to the way you're defining this, and obviously it makes perfect sense now why you went into the long-term rental business to where at scale you're helping people. What you're describing as being stoic is it's kind of like renting time or renting space essentially. So there's some commonalities based upon your principles and the software that you created as well, based upon your definition. So I want to talk about like that, that, that concept, I mean, that a chicken and egg, like, were you more so like a vacation rental person first, or were you more stoic first? Yeah, definitely vacation rental. I mean, I, I probably came to stoicism later, 
right? I think I stumbled across some of the names, but they sound intimidating. Epictetus, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius. It's not stuff that you just pick up for a light read, you don't think. And then you find them and you're actually, these are incredibly accessible. They totally relate to me. But I, I started in the vacation rental industry back in 2012. So it's been a decade that I've been doing that. And I think it was in building my first company, I'm now on my third company in the industry, that building these companies, you're going through the ups and downs. You're going through some hard times. I went from, hey, I'm going to be my own boss. This is going to be amazing. I don't have to work for other people. Then a few months in being like, oh my God, I work for every single person in the world. I work for my employees. I work for my customers. I work for my investors. Like, I, I don't have any time that's actually my own. And then realizing at some stage, the problem isn't everything around me. The problem's inside me. I get to decide the story I tell. I get to decide how I react or don't to the things happening around me. And so just seeking out, I, I read voraciously, right? I read 150 plus books a year. And that's how I came to know Marcus Realist, no Seneca, no Epictetus. So, man, this stuff really, really resonates. And what clicked for me was this concept. I We always talked about with my companies, my goal was to help people maximize the value of their most precious asset, their most valuable asset, right? And so it was always this home, this is your most valuable asset. And then I started looking around and I said, wait a minute. Our most valuable asset's not anything we can touch. The most valuable asset's right here, these six inches between our ears. And that we're all wasting. Like very rarely do you come across somebody that doesn't have a problem sleeping sometimes because they're worried about what's going to happen. That doesn't take a dinner with a family or time they're sitting with their family and sit there and play on their phone or have to answer phone calls or do emails. Or if they get cut off in traffic, doesn't stay mad for a while after, right? Like you just gave your mood to that jerk in traffic who doesn't know you exist. You just gave it to them. They own your mind. They don't even know you're alive, but they own your mind. And to me, and I think most people, when you describe it, like, man, yeah, that that's awful. Like, if I could get control of that, then I can control all these other things. Then I can be so much more effective in all these other things. And so it, it made me realize it took me years. But honestly, the marketing material is all, hey, we maximize the value of your most valuable asset. That's what we do. That's what we do. And then realizing... That's not your most valuable asset. That's not my most valuable asset. It's this other thing that we're not maximizing the value of. That's the problem. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing like the fact that you're like, you're extremely studious, right? You, you read, you know, hundred books per year plus. So that kind of leads me to like, are you associating a lot of this to your Ivy League background? I mean, obviously you, you have multiple degrees from Harvard. You've, you've been Cambridge. I mean, like, that type of upbringing and that type of education, are you saying that that's part of the reason why you are where you are right now? Or is it something where you've added life to your journey in addition to your education to get to where you are? Yeah, no, I mean, it. I'm definitely privileged in all sorts of different ways, right? Like you're coming out of those schools, you get networks, you get certain exposed to certain things. The The thing about this, though, this, this philosophy, this knowledge, this wisdom, I didn't get any of this from any of those schools. Right. These were from $2.99, $3.99 books that I bought off Amazon because they're out of print, right? Like these are 2000 year old books. You get Marcus Aurelius's meditations. It's less than a hundred pages. It's all in language you can totally relate to today. I don't need a Harvard degree to be able to read that and say, Oh man, I see myself in this. And same, like it, we actually had a little debate. With the publisher when we we're going to, to market on, I love to get out of my head, right? That was my idea. But then the 
colon after that, the creating modern clarity with Stoic wisdom, I said, well, what about if we said with ancient wisdom? Because Stoicism doesn't have monopoly on this. Buddhism knows a lot of this. Taoism knows a lot of this. Judeo-Christian prayer and thought, it knows a lot about this. And it's a, it's a universal human truth. Stoicism just provides a nice framework for it, but it, it's true in all these other areas too. And so, yeah, I think I definitely benefited from the schools I went to and everything I learned and, and the people I met there. But when it comes to this stuff, I don't think there was any, like this was from free podcasts, listening to Tim Ferriss and he interviews Ryan Holiday and Ryan Holiday talks about it. And so you start researching there and then you jump around. Like that's the free education, right? That's a Goodwill Hunting style education that is accessible to all of us. So I, mean, I think you brought up a really solid keyword as far as like ancient, right? And again, ancient, if you were to kind of flip that on the other side, it becomes to legacy. And so I want to kind of like talk about, are you instilling this in, in, in your daughter right now? Because I mean, before the show, we was talking about like, you know, you and your wife were prolific swimmers and genetically you've obviously passed that on to, to, to your kid. She's, she's a great swimmer and she's into multiple different things. So my question is like, like, like with that being on the table, has that kind of helped you to raise a kid that's going to perceive the world differently than kids usually are today? I mean, that's, that's certainly my objective, right? I, I've been very deliberate all the medals, right? The world chance medal, whatever it is from my swimming. I literally went and threw away. I don't have any of that stuff. One, they were just sitting in storage. We haven't looked at them in years and years. But then two, I didn't want my daughter to grow up saying that's my target, right? Like, Oh, I, I got to do this. Like, no, 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 this is your journey. I've had my life. Like that part of my life is done. I, I'm not doing that. You define your journey. I'm not going to set your goals for you. You need to come up with those. And so based on certain things I do and in certain ways I try to behave, I try to just instill that sort of mindset. Like it's about me inside. It's not about these external extrinsic motivators or targets. And then there's a separate piece, you know, certainly the books we read together, the things we talk about together, very much it comes to me to mind on the stoic and kind of the ancient philosophy of, she said, Daddy, you, you buy me this. That's the last thing I want, right? Like that's the last thing I'll ask for. And, you know, it, it's a little hard at seven 30 in the morning to have a conversation with a six year old to explain, look, I totally understand you think that, but remember the last time you said that. And then we got the thing and you loved it for two days. And then you were ready and you said, well, now I need this new thing. And that's why every time you go to a friend's house, it's so fun to play with their toys or they come to your house. It's so fun to play with your toys because they're new to you. But whatever new we get, we adapt to that. And then you're just going to want the next thing. So let's find a way to find our happiness from what we have here, as opposed to thinking it's always outside of us. And that's something we, that's a conversation we probably have every couple of weeks, but it's, it's a heavy conversation to have with a six year old, but I, I still try to do it. Wow. Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely insightful to, to hear that. But so. I mean, I'm hearing this and it's such a, it's such a great conversation. It's such a great topic to, to, to have this insight coming from you being that who you were, right. And who you are right now, essentially you graduated with a law degree, right? Two, two, right. You, yeah. you built a, a company that that's a platform to help with long-term rentals. And you wrote a book about being stoic. So like this, just talk about this transitional journey, right? Like, like you got the degree, you you spent tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to get it. Are you leveraging any of those things from that degree 
into your platform going into being more stoic? Yeah. So I would say there was some, something somebody said early on in, in law school, like maybe our second semester there that the people who love law school tend to really not enjoy being lawyers. And the people who get really frustrated with law school are the ones that they just can't wait for law to, to practice. And my wife and I are kind of the inverse. I met her. She had gone to Cambridge for law. And I think she was really frustrated with the theory of school. And it's all about the practical. And she just killed it. She's a great lawyer. I went and I was all about the theory. I went, you know, I studied civil rights, human rights undergrad when I was going to go do civil rights, human rights law school, did it in the U.S., did it abroad, studied internationally. It was 50th anniversary of Brown. I got to meet all the people who were still alive, part of that case. I got to work on a retrial of it, 50-year anniversary at the ABA conference because a firm that I interned for was doing education litigation. We did it. Argued one side. My thesis advisor, his wife was one of the expert witnesses. Like I got everything I wanted. But the practice, the work I did day to day was not inspiring. Right. Like it was, it was not doing what I was sitting solely in by myself, reading case after case after case, writing memos that I didn't know if anybody ever read. It wasn't, I didn't think using what I could really put together. Like I think me writing this book is far more effective in changing what I was going to do sitting in an office working on some of this stuff. And, and so when you say, do I use the things I, I don't use? Like, do we have jurisdiction in this to, uh, do we move from federal to state? Like some of these very tactical, practical things I learned in law school, I don't use that. But the way of thinking and dissecting problems and being able to conceptualize, break them apart, pull them back together, that I use multiple times a day. And has been when I was an consultant at McKinsey to when I'm starting my own business to when I'm advising other startups. Those are skills that will serve me for the rest of my life. So, yeah, let's just peel that back, right? I mean, obviously, you you started your company, right? And in one year, you made 200000 And then in three years, you've grown it to $10 million, right? Yeah. So, obviously, that's that's a lot of different hurdles to overcome. And like what you're saying, like you learned from law school how to dissect problems. What is one of the like the key problems in, in, in dissecting from where you were at 200000 to get to $10 million? Like, And that thing, that, that's like the bubble of like, I'm at 200000 and then people get stuck there. Yeah. How did you kind of expand and break out of that? How did you solve that problem? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the, the first thing was at each stage, go through the entire funnel and find where is the biggest bottleneck. So at 200,000, the biggest thing was, Hey, look, we have all these people coming in saying yes. And then they're not signing a deal. We're not getting paid. What's happening. And I talked to my team and they're looking at the data. I'm like, everyone's different. Everyone's different. I said, okay, you just go catalog the data, hand it to me. I'm going to go dive into it. So I go dive into it. I find 90% of the time, it's one side of the transaction that they cancel. Okay, great. Let me double click there. Oh, 90% of that 90%, it's because they thought they were saying yes to something different than what they were saying yes to. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're saying 80% of the time I can solve it by better educating these people before they say yes. So we went from 5% converting to 90% within four months. Boom. That just blows up your funnel. Like, okay, that's big growth. Then going from there. Okay. Now, how do we get more people saying yes? Okay. What kind of vetting? And so what, what I did was just every single point, what is the single lever that's going to have the biggest impact? And then going in 
and and breaking apart the problem. Like where where is there friction today? Where is it that we can solve? And that can be a product issue, that can be a process issue, can be people issue. It could be totally different. It could be components of all of the above, but really trying to find what are the big issues, focus on a single one, get the entire team to understand what that is and what their role is in solving it, and just hammer on only it until you unlock it and then go find the next bottleneck. And so to get from, you know, in 36 months to go from 200,000 to 10 million, th- that was three or four times we had to do that. That wasn't, hey, you saw this and all, all of a sudden, yeah, great, you grew 51 times. You had to do it and you're like, great, that grew us five times. Okay, now we did this. Oh, that grew us another three. Oh, let's go do this. That grew us another two. Let's go do this. That grew us another two. You got to just keep doing it on top of each other. I think I think that that's a hell of an insightful way to, to look at it. I mean, you're breaking it down to to like micro to macro and and, and achieving each problem as as they present themselves, and then you're scaling from there. So it kind of leads me to okay, obviously you sound like a developer, right? You you sound like a startup founder. You, you obviously that, but you were a lawyer, right? Right. So like how, like what was the turning factor for you? Cause I mean, think of it from standpoint, I could be a plumber and then one day I come up with some software. I'm a lawyer and now I have a software that kind of helps with long-term rentals. What was that light bulb moment that kind of inspired you to say, Hey, I want to build and develop this. Yeah. So, I mean, that wasn't an overnight thing, right? So first go to law school thing and I'm going to go be human rights lawyer. lawyer. Spend my whole first year focused on that, working with Charles Ogletree, like doing all the issues, working at law firm, doing the stuff. And then saying, this is not what I want to do. Okay. Now, now what do I want to do? Then I started working for more professors saying, maybe I'll go into academia. That's when I went abroad and said, okay, if I get the second law degree, that'll help. And said, Ooh, working from these professors, that's not what I want to do either. Then going in, in some of the classes, they talk about business issues and they talked about this company, McKinsey. Say, oh, say this person really understands business. Say it's McKinsey. It's like, I don't even know what McKinsey is, but I took my corporations law class. I'm like, man, it sounds like the business people do all the interesting work and then the lawyers just go right up the documents. Like, I want to go on the business side of things. And then going in, McKinsey recruited on campus and they, they came and they said, Hey, if you come in, half the people that come into McKinsey, they have an MBA. They're business people and they go into work. The other half, they don't have MBAs. But we want you to have that skill set. So what McKinsey does is we go take you in for a month. We put you in a resort we own. It could be in Singapore. It could be in Kidspiel, Austria. And we bring Harvard Business School to you. We bring NCI to you. We bring Stanford Business School to you. And you're then with neuroscientists, rocket scientists, doctors, lawyers, physicians, like all these come together. And we do, we get the entire first year of business school in a month from the best professors in the world. Said. That's a hell of a bitch. <laughs> Sign me up for that. I'm yeah. going to go do that. So I went to McKinsey and did that. So I lived in Kitsville, Austria for a month and the top of the top professors from Kellogg and Harvard, all these come teach us and you get the entire, it's very intense, but still some of my best friends are from that period in any MBA and did that for, for four years. Got to work with on education, right? Got to work with superintendents and school districts, working on teacher effectiveness. Got to do a year in Afghanistan where I was doing economic development work. Got to do some really exciting and practical stuff. And then uh, a partner I worked with said, Hey, there's this, this kind of startup that they need somebody who knows law, who also knows consulting and business to go build this new product. And I think you'd be pretty good for this. You have two law degrees <laughs> and, and you know, US, UK. And, and you know, the business side. 
So I go and the first year took that business from 4 million to 20 million in 12 months. And my clients were in Belfast and London and New York and all over the US. Like, okay, pretty good at this. Like I can go, I can go grow a business. It's kind of cool. And then had the idea for what my first company was vacation futures and kind of had that confidence of, Hey, I know how to go build a business. I can go do this. And so that, that was in 2012 when I left there and started my first company. So it was kind of step by step of I, you know, I think we talked about earlier a little bit being a swimmer and that was my identity, right? Growing up, being in high school, early part of college, that was my identity. I was a swimmer. These other things that may happen, but I was a swimmer. Then I got injured and I wasn't competing at the same level. Say, okay, well, who am I? Okay, I'll be a student. I'll be this really serious student. And that gets me to law school. Okay, I'm a, I'm, I'm a lawyer. Wait, no, I'm not a lawyer. I don't like that. I'm a, I'm a consultant. And at some point taking myself away from this mono-focused identity and following curiosity and following opportunity. So I don't define myself by what I do, but I define what I do by what I can impact, by what I'm curious about, by what seems exciting to me that I can be good at. Wow. I mean, we've been on this call like roughly 20 minutes and the reoccurring theme that I keep hearing from you is obviously education education. Like you said, you solved your problems by figuring out what the, the, the one switch was. And then you educated those particular clients to help solve that problem. You talked about your education coming back into play, even though you weren't really utilizing it. And that's how you got into where you are right now with, with the platform that you're in. And then earlier on, you said, you know, you read 110 books a year. So again, education, education, education. So I want you to kind of define yourself. I mean, obviously, you're stoic, right? You're, you're you're highly educated, but if you can pick three to five words to define you, what would those three to five words be? Yeah, and so I, I would go back to my values, right? Like my top five values. So my my number one is growth, growth, and it, it's growth and learning is a is a very selfish endeavor unless it's in service to something else. So my growth and my learning is in service to helping other people, helping my family, helping my clients, helping my employees, helping society. Right? How do I help others through this growth? That's number one. Number two is my health. I take my health very, very seriously. Swimming every day, exercising every day, what I eat, what I put into my body, how I teach my daughter about that. Health, number two. Number three is my family. You know, and, and thinking through these rankings, initially I had family higher, and then I saw how I live my life. It's like, actually, no, I put these first two. If I'm going to be 100% there for my family, I got to take care of these first two because I'm not the same person if I'm not taking care of those. So my family, number three. Number four, curiosity. Right. Hopefully that's a theme that's kind of coming up is I see something I'm curious. Why is that? Why is it working like that? What can be different? And then my fifth is peace. And that kind of comes from the stoicism as well. Don't always want that craving and chasing, but to be at peace with who I am. Right. Like I know my goals. I want to work at them, but I'm not going to get over attached to them versus who I am and stay in core to that as I'm working towards these bigger things. So, I mean, I mean, obviously with that, it sounds like you're very systematic with your approaches. And again, it kind of goes back to, to your education as far as the law schools is kind of dissecting things. So my next question is like onboarding. If a customer comes to your platform, I would think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's a particular system or onboarding process that, that, that you probably have. What, what does that look like? Somebody coming to you brand new off the street, are, are you doing more investigation? Are you trying to figure out what their goals and aspirations are? How does someone get onboarded with your platform? 
Yeah. So that, I mean, honestly, they, they click in and they can paste an Airbnb link and it pulls all the property data in and it comes in. They can start playing in the, the system. And so we try to make it as simple, easy self-service as possible. We also capture data on that client to say, Hey, is this, is this a bigger fish? Do we need to reach out and put some investment in training them how to use this? So we can't afford to do that for somebody that has one property. Somebody has a hundred properties. Okay. Yeah. Then let's have our onboarding team in. Let's schedule an onboarding call. Let's help them set up their properties because we want them to really, really be successful. And we want everybody to be successful. So as we do that and see here are the questions we get, here are the things we have to talk about, creating more tutorials, creating more videos, creating more knowledge based articles around those things so that less and less requires the human, more and more can be automated. So, you know, as I look at something, say, how do you make this better? How do you make it more efficient? My number one thing is, what can you take out? What can just stop? What's not adding value? And so if, if it's these five steps, say, okay, well, how do we get that down to three? How do we get it down to two, to one? Why, why does it need to be five? What are we trying to achieve? How do we get that back? One example is, oh, with these new clients, they say yes, and then we have to go back to them and ask for this API key to integrate to their system. Say, okay, great. So now, as soon as they say yes, ask them for the API key, because you're telling me you lose two days after you get off the phone to go back and ask them, you email them and they take a while to respond. Why would we lose that? Just ask for them. They're on the phone with you right there. Say, hey, if you go click up here, copy and paste this, send it to me right now. There, we just saved 48 hours. Cut, cut onboarding time in half. Fantastic. And so how do you cut steps out is number one. Number two, then how do you automate it? Is there anything that doesn't need a human? It's the same thing every time. Let's put technology behind it and automate it. Number three, could it be a lower cost resource? So if it's me, that's a very expensive resource. How do we move that down so it's cheaper and cheaper resource? And then four, who's the right person? Who's the best person to do it if you can't do those other three? And you should constantly be trying to work of how do I take this from a more expensive to less expensive? How do I take it from less expensive to automate? How do I do it from automate to redundancy? It's not needed anymore. Yeah, I think we, we speak the same language. I mean, obviously, systems and processes and automation, it, it, if people that are, are scared of AI, scared of machine to machine and scared of technology, I hate to say that they're going to eventually be obsolete, but that's the world that we live in. And to your point, like your time, like you may be able to charge $5,000 per hour versus you could spend that same $5,000 and have 25 automation systems running in less than an hour time and have everything done for you. So like my next question is like, okay, the system is there. It's working, right? What's a case analysis or a scenario of what your software does for someone? Like why, like more so kind of like what's your, your value proposition yeah. for a user to use your platform? Yeah. So, I mean, the value proposition is a money machine. We, I was just working with the team on some analysis of what is our ROI calculation, return on investment, the client spending money with us. And we look at, Hey, before you turned us on, here's how you were performing versus your market. And the 12 months after you turned us on, here's how you're performing. That made you this number of extra dollars. That made you 11,000 more dollars. You paid us $500 in that time. You got over a 20, every dollar you gave us, we gave you a $20 bill back. That is, that is a good investment. And so how do we do that? We do that because historically how people praise vacation rentals was they would go and the year before they'd say, okay, the summer peak season is this much. Fourth of July is going to be a little bit more than that. And then the off season is going to be this much. And in the winter, it's going to be this much. And maybe I had some differences on the Tuesday versus a weekend, right? Maybe there's some difference and I said it, 
Like best case, you set different rates, but you set it. Mm-hmm. If the world changes, COVID hit, markets open up, demand goes up, demand goes down. And you can't set your price today based on what happened yesterday, much less what happened a year ago. So what we do, we constantly ingest every listing in the world, real time. Did it book or not? What price is it listed at? We look at every property you have and say, what are the other properties someone searching would be looking at? What are those properties going for? How many properties do they have like yours there? Do we need to move that price up or down today to make sure you're making the most from this property? And we do that and it turns into a money machine. Again, every dollar you spend, we're giving you 20 back. That's a good deal. So uh, for the listener, I want to kind of like reiterate that, right? I mean, your platform is essentially taking the the market average of what that particular property is selling for in that, say, zip code or that region during that time. More specific, more specific, right? Like it's saying three bedrooms with three baths with a pool just like yours mm-hmm. in this half mile radius. There, there are 25 of them. 20 of them are already booked. The other five, they're listed at this. You still have four months. You need to push your price up. You need to be more than all the other five because there are only five left. So or it's creating supply and demand as well. Oh yeah, hundred percent, real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's 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 serious. So I mean, I, I, again, if anyone's into long term rentals and if you're not using utilizing this platform, I want you to kind of really understand like everything that we said before. We're telling your story. Like that is the money maker for your particular platform. Is that you're essentially changing the pricing on demand without the user having to do anything. Correct. Yeah, they don't have to touch it. So, I mean, th- there's a couple of things here. So it's, it's short-term rentals, it's Airbnbs, vacation rentals, right? Average stay, maybe two, three nights, but it could be a, a week, could be three months, 30 days, three months. But what, you know, we're talking about the the person versus machine. Yeah. I mean, if you're not comfortable with machine, look, that's where it's going. My, the thing I constantly tell people though, when we see it is you think about chess. For all of human history, no machine could be the human. You had the best human, no machine could be the best human. And then big blue comes in. And beats the best human. It's better, better than a human. But then Gary Kasparov doesn't give up. Say, I, I'm going to one up you. I'm going to create centaur chess. It's going to be teams of humans using the data analysis of the machine. No machines have ever been able to beat these centaur teams. So you take the strategy, the strategic mind of humans. That's not to say it'll never happen, but today machines are not that there of the human plus the machine beats the best machine. And so we say, yeah, this machine may be better than you alone, what you would do or be willing to do. But if you're willing to put the time and and oversight on it, you're going to get better results if you do person plus machine. That's just where the technology is. That's where the data analysis is. It may get better, but it's not quite there yet. Well, I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, you, you have such a duality in your passion. I mean, obviously your, your passion about like the state of mind and utilizing the mind as, as, as a tool, as a representation of a person. But at the same time, I, I hear your love and passion for technology and, and the futurism as well. So with that, right, with, with my last two statements being said, this say time travel is a real thing. If you had an opportunity to go back, when would you go back to and what's one thing that you would possibly want to change to do everything differently all over again? Oh, you're saying like change in my life? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, considering, I mean, you're, you're like, I mean, obviously Harvard graduate ch- swimming champion. Like, I mean, you have the life, but again, as an individual and I, and I could tell that you're overachiever, there's always something that maybe at one time or the other you wanted to do differently. 
Yeah. I mean, I think there are little things like this, like, oh, this one race, if I had done this slightly different, I think I could have won that instead of getting second, stuff like that. But then the, the other side of me is, and, and I constantly go back to it. I, I went back to it today, like replaying a race I just had two weekends ago. I, today, would not trade my life for anything. People say, oh, don't go on social media. It'll make you depressed because you're comparing your day-to-day to other people's highlight reel. This may not come across right, but I know my day-to-day and I see other people's highlight reels and I prefer my day-to-day. I love my life. I love that I get to work on problems I love. I love that I get the time to swim. I love that I get that time with my family. I, I've built the life that no highlight reel. I don't care if you go to a club, you're popping about like that. I like the whole of my life and more than those highlights. Those don't mean anything to me. And so knowing that if I changed anything along that path, oh, if this happened, then maybe I would have gotten this, but maybe I wouldn't have written this book. Maybe I wouldn't have met my wife. Maybe this thing wouldn't happen and I wouldn't trade my life for anything in the world. Huh. And so, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't go blow it up. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go change a thing. Well, I mean, I, I think like to the point to where, to where you are earlier on, we was talking about, okay, I, I think like originally you were in Atlanta. So I want you to kind of allude to like where you are. I mean, obviously your backdrop is, is preceding your answer, yeah. but I mean, wh- wh- where do you live right now? Yeah, I live on the water in Bermuda. So I live on the North shore. My steps go into the water. So I, you know, every day, literally every day, hurricane or not, get in that ocean and swim, stingrays, parrotfish, sea turtles. My daughter gets in with me. She open water swims at six. She'll go swim a few hundred yards with me. Yeah, it is. It's pretty special. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, this is, let's just go back in time again, right? I mean, obviously you're living the life that maybe you envision or you've created you've obviously developed the life that that you wanted go back to like your your parents like are you coming from an entrepreneurial background are you getting any insight or assists or information from your parents or are you living like the life that they wish they could have i'm not sure it's actually either so i i don't think my parents want my life both my parents were physicians right like very structured graduate school all this and i think me going to law school in some ways was following that path of, hey, go to a professional school, get this advanced degree, you have this set path. They were both the oldest children of my dad four, my mom five, and I was the oldest child, right? So this was the path. You go do the kind of predefined. And I think I was doing that for a while and then said, wait, you know, I, I'm i not living for somebody else. I'm, this is my life to live. Where are my passions? Where are my curiosity taking me? And so I think... I got some examples of things that I didn't appreciate. Like I, I saw some of the stuff they do, how, how my dad's practice was run in a lot of ways and said, dad, you spend 80% of your day in a car. You're a pediatric cardiologist. When you're in front of a patient, you're billing at like $5,000 an hour. This is insane. Like this is not the right way. No, no, no. This is how we're doing it because they're doctors running. And so I think seeing some of that stuff showed me things I didn't want to do. Oh, just taking it for granted of if this decision is made, it's the right decision. No, I'm always going to question, always going to question. Could this be better? So, but on the other side, I think my parents see me. I don't think they want my life. I think they like it, especially now that now they're retired. They're just loving it. (laughs) You know, I think that they're very happy with the the decisions they made. You know, there's a line in my book I took from Ellen Longer. It's not about choosing the right thing. It's about choosing the thing and then making it right. And so looking back with regrets, it doesn't help. 
looking forward with how do I now make where I am the right thing that I'm always looking forward. How do I make what I have now the right thing? I'm looking ground below my feet today. How do I tend this garden? It doesn't really matter what's behind me. I, I need to learn from that. Say, okay, what lesson did I get from there that's going to help me going forward? But replaying that, that that's, I don't think, both me and my parents, I don't think they do a lot of that. So that that is probably an example I took from that. Very cool. Very cool. So let's just go back to what you said earlier. I mean, you were saying that you know, literally every day you get up, you know, like you're choosing the food that you eat. Obviously, you're, you're, you work out on a regular basis. You swim every day. You're like you're cut. You're ripped. You have to be like very strict with your routine. So what does your morning routine, your morning habits look like? Yeah. So my morning without an alarm, I typically wake up. It's like 527, 528. I look up. I'm just amazed each morning. Yep. <laughs> like still right there. Hop up, get up, do some kind of exercises to help with my backs and back and hips. Just get a little movement in there, some prehabbing. Then I sit and do meditation. And so that's typically before six. I, I typically finish around six, six, ten. Some mornings my daughter gets up really early. And so she'll come in and she knows not to interrupt. She'll just sit in my lap or she'll sit with me and we just kind of breathe together. We do that together. If she's up, she'll do Mandarin with me. If she's not up and I do that on my own, I, I do Duolingo, do a little bit of that and then some journaling. And then it's about getting her ready for the day, getting her lunch together, her breakfast. And then we both go out. Get her to school. I do the gym and get a little short swim or I do a swim that morning. And then because we're an hour ahead in Bermuda, I can get online at like 830 Eastern, which is still a great time to get online. I've got all this done in three hours and then I have my work day. And then a lot of time with my team, a lot of time with clients working on that throughout the day. And then I have two hours blocked. My daughter has nanny that picks her up from school. 545, she's off. And so have 5.45 to 7.30 block. We do as a family. My device is in a different room. And then typically my wife and I have a little work later that night. I mean, it's just like, I know I called you the stoic boss, but it's just kind of like hearing your routine and those that don't know, like I, I went to his Instagram account and, and this, this, this man is, I, I'm starting to think he's more like the Terminator, right? He's doing a handstand, like, snorkeling in water as well so when i say he's he's finally tuned as, as a workout machine he he's a finally tuned workout machine it's, but at, at the same time you're like so like educated as well so like there's there's a balance in that you're just you're just not like to, to be facetious like a dumb jock right i mean there there's equilibrium in that so i want to kind of go back to what you said earlier you, you talked about reading 110 books per year so this is a three-part question the first part of it is obviously there has to be a book that stands out that you probably do recommend on a regular basis that you've read probably more than once in your journey. What's that book, right? The second part of that question is like, what book are you actively reading right now? And the third part of the question, I want to dive into the book that you've written a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So the first one, it is context specific. So probably the, the book that I gift people the most that's not my own is The Daily Stoic. I just think that journaling... You know, by Ryan Holiday, it's a, it's a, just a prompt each day with these stoic quotes and a little exposition. That one I, I just find is, is super helpful for people in framing things. Probably the single most influential book in my life that I've only read once. I've never gone back to, but it's influential, not because of what was in the book, but because of where it led is Tim Ferriss's The Four Hour Work Week, because that introduced me to Tim Ferriss, who then The Four Hour Body. For our body, I introduced to my dad. He lost 65 pounds in a year as a cardiologist, put thousands of patients on it, saved people's lives, right? 
it had that impact. It led to me following Tim Ferriss's podcast, learning about Ryan Holiday, learning about Stoicism, learning about Peter T, all these other things, right? It, it all started at that one book. So it was less about that book than what it launched for me. And then books that I revisit, certainly the probably the two biggest are Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, I'll read multiple times a year, and then uh, Laozi, the Tao Te Ching. I revisit that multiple times. And both of those very short, you know, maybe 50, 60 pages, but depth, like just miles and miles of depth to them that you could reread and get new things from them every single time. So those definitely revisit a lot. In terms of what I'm reading now, I just, just last night finished a Salman Rushdie collection of short stories, East West, like this juxtaposition of Eastern mindset, Western mindset of these short stories. And then just starting now, common ground, a profile of three families. So it's about integration and busing in Boston and following these three families through it. That's a lot of stuff I studied in undergrad. And so it's something I'm just interested in. So that's kind of my my deeper nonfiction. And then the one I, I go back to a little bit, it's been a long time, is 1001 Arabian Nights. So that's on my Kindle and easy to travel with, just pick up a couple stories here and there. And then, yeah, then my book, Get Out of My Head, you know, it's, it's really the purpose is if, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling like you're not in control of your life, you're feeling like, man, this post COVID world or this hybrid work environment, I'm having a hard time setting boundaries. I'm having a hard time getting these jerks out of my head, right? Like all these things. That's why I wrote it because that you're not alone. In fact, it means you're human and there are solutions and, and we know them and this book, besides giving you all that context, every chapter breaks out. Here's the exercise that is in your hands to now go use to start putting this to practice in your own life. This worked for this Olympian. This worked for this Navy SEAL. This worked for this multi-billion dollar founder. Now you have this tool as well. And so there's the book and then there's the, the downloadable workbook that pulls those exercises out. So you can say, hey, let me, it's one thing to know. Right. G.I. Joe knows half the battle. Well, the other half is doing something about it. Yeah. And that's what these exercises really put up. I think I think it's definitely um, I, I see see the value at in that book. And I think it was on I forgot what podcast you were on. And it, w- it was an interesting question. And they were talking about like you wrote a book about being stoic, but you are essentially a CEO of a, of a SaaS based platform. But what I see and, and what I'm hearing is that you essentially wrote a book for leadership and understand how to find equality within oneself to be a better leader to then grow and prosper in whatever company that you plan on doing. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but did, did I, did I nail that? Yeah, you a hundred percent nailed it. I mean, in fact, I'm doing in December with the, the Plato Institute doing a whole thing on ancient philosophy and leadership, right? Like, because that, that's what this is all about is how to build a better you so you can lead yourself through a better life and those around you, right? This is your one shot. This is the one life you have. Don't, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait. Oh, I'm going to do this later. No, the, the, the work starts now. It's, it's like people may pick up a book or some list to a podcast. Like, okay, great. Like now I got it. Well, okay. Do you think you got it or are you going to go work on it? Cause it's like exercise. Just cause you did that one good workout or that one month of workout. That's just one month of it. You got to do it every, for the rest of your life. Same with diet. You don't eat healthy for a week and then go have donuts the rest of your life. Like, this is a practice. You're investing in your body. You're investing in your mind. You're investing in your mental capacity and your, your effectiveness. And it's got to be an ongoing practice because it, it, it's not natural. But the only thing that's natural is mediocrity, right? Like 
LeBron James is a big guy, but if he didn't work as hard as he did, he wouldn't be the king. You see how hard Steph Curry works. He's so good because he works so hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's that's a sound bite for, for a T-shirt and for, for every marketing leadership campaign in the world right there. I mean, like the that's it's a great statement. So it kind of leads me to with that being said, right? I mean, working and getting the achievements and, and getting the results. What is the purpose of, of what you're doing? I mean, what's the long term play? Where do you see yourself or your company 20 years from now? 20 years from now, same in today in helping people, right? What we're doing in short-term rentals is helping those local managers so that they provide better businesses. They provide better business for the owners. They provide better business for the guests. And we have to stop cutting down more trees, have to stop building newer hotels because we have all these empty houses. If we could be better about using these empty houses, we don't have to go destroy a bunch of stuff and build new things. We have all these great things. We just need to use them better. So if we can help you use those better, we're doing our job. And we could do that in so many different ways. And this is a huge global industry. In terms of me, right, number one value, growth. Growth and service to helping other people. So that's through this book. That's through workshops I do, through speaking. It could be other books I write. It could be other speaking. But it's how am I serving? I mentor. I do tech stars. How do I help other founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs? Any way I can help, That that's why I'm here. Very cool. Very cool. I mean, obviously, it seems like you're definitely designed to, to give back, but you're giving back at scale. You're not. And it's funny because I've had this conversation before with, with, with Wiley Day, who, who's a billionaire. And she had made this comment and I'd asked her because I had some people that had left some questions coming into that podcast episode mm-hmm. about, hey, do you do any like leadership training? Do you do any like one on one? Do you do any mentorship? And her response was she buys companies and helps those companies grow by teaching those leaders how to run those companies. And essentially you're saying the same exact thing. And I want the listener to really comprehend that it, 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 there's a difference between one on one training and someone giving you the breadcrumbs to lead you on how to teach you how to fish. If that makes sense. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, that was. One company I worked at, that was a little one of my frustrations that they, they scaled with bodies. Like, hey, we make more money the more bodies we throw at this. What? I don't like that. I want to scale with, cro- with code. I want to scale. Like, how do you actually scale? How do you do something more than a body? How do you, and that's, that's where you get leverage. A podcast, that's not, we're having one conversation, but we can share that with thousands of people. They can benefit from that conversation. You write a book. One person reads that, but millions of other people can read that and benefit from that knowledge. And so how can you take, if it's something valuable, how do you take that and make it more impactful to more people? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, again, I I love this conversation and I'm trying to like make these mental notes of different things you've said to kind of bring them back up. A few minutes ago, you had mentioned about your ideal avatar or who you're potentially talking to is essentially property managers, right? So who else is in that demographic or that segmentation would be ideal to use your platform? Yeah, Rennet is is just focused on vacation rental managers and Airbnb hosts. So people who are renting out their properties, their homes, on a nightly, weekly basis. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. We price by day. And so if you're renting for a year or more at a time, we don't provide the lift. If you're renting night or a week at a time, that's where you really see that lift. Because one of our company values is better for all. We only want to do transactions. We want to transact. If it's better for all, right? That we're providing you more value than you're paying to us and that we're getting more value from you and what you're paying than what we're putting in. It needs to work for both sides. Huh. 
makes makes I mean it, it makes logical sense. So like let's just say in a in a stoic tone of words of wisdom to a leader that's working with this say a SaaS based platform, what insight do you want them to take from you right now? What words of wisdom would you leave with them to help them to continue to grow their company? Yeah. I mean it's the one I, I put in front of my desk. Other people aren't the problem. So it's not your client. It's not your employee. It's not your family, your friends. Other people aren't the problem. That's not the problem. Other people are what they are. And so your job as a leader, your job as a CEO, your job as a founder is understand, understand other people and to build knowing what they are. You're not going to change them, but you can change how your product, your service serves them, how they understand how it serves them. Understanding you're not changing people. You can change your product, how you do it to meet them where they are. So, I mean, we're saying something so great in that last statement. How does someone get in contact with you? Is it through like your, your, your rent platform? Is it directly through your social media? Like how does someone get in contact with you? Yeah. So my website, mandrewmcconnell.com, certainly can contact me through that. Emails all come straight to me. I respond to all of them. I'm on LinkedIn. Please connect with me there. I'm Andrew McConnell. I'm on Instagram and Andrew McConnell, Twitter and a McConnell. And so, yeah, wherever you are, I am and hit me up. (laughs) Very cool. So we kind of jump into like some, some bonus questions and, and, and this one being as diverse as you are, I'm kind of really interested to kind of hear what your answer is going to be. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, right. And that person could be dead or alive anytime in history. Right. And you have opportunity to spend 24 hours with them. Who would it be and why? Yeah, I, It'd probably be Siddhartha. I, I don't know if 24 hours would be enough to really get it, but I mean, to go to the Buddha and just kind of hear, assuming that language isn't an issue and all that kind of stuff, like that we could actually understand each other. Getting that time with that kind of teacher, <laughs> that that would be pretty extraordinary. Wow. So that, 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 that so. Out of all the achievements you've ever had, right? I mean, obviously you've had dozens of them at this point in time. Which one is your most significant achievement to date? In my life. Huh. The fact that I, I, I built a life. Because every achievement, right? You won an Olympic gold medal. Not that I have won, but you do. And then you have depression. You have this fall off. Because you adjust. You're like, okay, I got that thing. What's next? What's next? What's next? And realizing... And it's, you know, in the past couple of years, I don't need to put off happiness. I don't need to put off these things to when I get this, then all this will come my way. I say, why don't I craft the life that I want now? How do I build the components of the learning, the time with family, the health aspects? How do I craft that now? And so my single biggest achievement in my mind is living the life that I want to live. I think that's, that's a hell of a, of a, of a closing statement for, for sure. So going into closing, right. I always like to give opportunity to whoever I'm interviewing to, to make them the host of my show and to s- switch the roles. Right. So now you're the host of Boston cage and I'm your guest. Yeah. We've had this great conversation. Some questions may have come up that you want to ask me. The show is yours. You have any questions that you'd like to ask? Yeah. I mean, the first one for me is, this is obviously a big lift. It's a big commitment to come in. You do your research. You know your guests. And you you have a lot of them, and you do a great job. You're very curious. 
what brought you into this in the first place? What made you say, hey, I'm going to go put all this investment of my time, my effort into it? I mean, it was definitely some life events that happened, you know, kind of almost dying at one time and pulling out of that and hearing the, the, the voice of my girlfriend at tomb was my wife saying it was time for me to rebrand myself and what was I going to do? But more so as I got involved in podcasting and realizing like the reach and it's not necessarily the notoriety, but the opportunity to be able to tell these stories in that tonality and in that voice and giving back to the community of people that may not even be born yet. Like mm. leaving that legacy behind to where 50 years down the road, technology still being in an advancement state to where this content will still be around. And again, we're talking about evergreen things to where 60 years from now, it may be a kid that's being born 20 years before that, that listens to this on his 21st birthday. And what we're talking about resonates enough with him in that phase of his life to make him achieve his next goal and to become successful. That's really cool. What's been the the most surprising positive thing to come out of it? Like you you went in having these expectations. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to get. And then what what else did you get that you didn't even know you were going to get going in? I didn't never think about it until I realized that by doing this podcast is that I'm a hell of an educator. And like once I've realized that, it was just like I hated school. <laughs> it's kind of like going back. Like I, I, like my senior year in high school, I probably cut like literally 60%, 60% of that year. And the only reason why I graduated because they gave me the final exams and I passed the final exams and they would like, just get them out of school. Right. So like realizing that was high school. And then now realizing like the value of tangible, actionable education, I just wish that was available when I was at school because I, I would have took way more of a hold and interest in school if that opportunity was there. Yeah, I guess question there. I mean, is it is it the self-direction? Because, you know, just this conversation with you listening to the podcast, you're an incredibly curious person, right? Like you don't seem intellectually checked out. So it, to me, it seems like it must have been the environment that was not pulling you in to reach your highest potential. But when you have the self-direction of like, hey, here's what I'm curious about. I'm going to go real deep. Mm -hmm. you, you are a student of life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think the response for that was more so like that's why I don't like environments that, that, that have captive. Like I was an insurance agent at one time and then I really learned quickly being captive and uncaptive. Right. Mm. And, and, and being in. The, and that's why my brain is uncaged, because, again, mm. you have that freedom to find your journey. And I probably push myself way more than any environment or school could ever push me to making achievements by wanting to do it versus being demanded to do it. Yeah. All right. All right. Last one then. Um, what, uh, what's coming next? Like what's next for you? What, what are you excited about? Oh man, there's so many different variables to, to, to that, to that question. Right. I mean, every single day I'm thinking about scaling and, 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 Recently, to your point, you're a SaaS guy. That's the thing that keeps coming up and reoccurring over and over again. Like I've authored 10 books and I'm speaking on stages and I'm doing the podcast and I'm getting highly successful people. And I'm not saying all that's a given, but I'm just like at that point to where I have an abundance of content an abundance of, of expectation for myself. And I'm like, I need something to contain and to then regurgitate and help. And the only way I could think about doing that is something SaaS driven, some kind mm -hmm. of software or platform to take these different elements of what I'm doing and strategize it to then give back 
with the information from the podcast, but also help people do what I'm doing at scale. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I had this article. I, I do think it's going to be a bigger theme, right? There was SaaS, software as a service. I think there's some component there. Amazon, you've seen do it. Now there's a scale as a service where you yep. build scale for these things, like whether it's managing servers or it's putting together podcasts. I have a friend that has hospitality.fm launched his whole podcast platform. So he's like, Hey, I'm doing this podcast, but with everything I'm putting into it, how do I use that scale to help others launch their platform to market it to do all that? So he <laughs> built a SaaS platform for his podcast because he's like, I'm doing this for myself already. Let me build it at scale to serve others. There's huge opportunities there. So yeah, I'm excited yeah. for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I wake up twitching and thinking about it and, and, and it's like, okay, I got all these different random puzzle pieces and it's kind of like you're, you're a founder. So you understand what I'm talking about. You see these puzzle pieces and you know, once the assembly line starts to come together, then yeah. you a moment to happen and you don't need the entire assembly line. You just need two to three components to start right. and then all the other pieces to become more magnetic and they'll start to form themselves. I'm at that stage now where I'm just like, okay, I can't sleep without thinking about this. That's going to be like my, my next iteration of what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm excited for you. Well, I definitely appreciate it, man. I think this was, was a hell of an insightful episode. I mean, going into it and, and just hearing like the keyword of being stoic, I was like, this is going to be a pretty different episode. Cause I mean, obviously you're talking about software, you're talking about rentals, but there's a whole ideology part of this that, that I, I enjoyed. I, I definitely enjoyed this episode for sure. I definitely appreciate you being here. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Essay Grant over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncage. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.